Welcome to another episode of the Love with Elise Peck podcast. I'm your host, Elise Peck. I'm a best-selling author, certified mindset coach, psychology student, former lawyer, wife, and mother to two primary school aged girls. Today, I'm very happy to be speaking with Beck Delahoy. Beck is a homeschooling mom of three and the author behind the Substack Lessons Learned, where she shares the things she's learning about parenthood through her own experiences and expert research. Amazing. Welcome, Beck. Thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. I would just to double check, have I said your name correctly? Yep, yep, that's right. Amazing. I've got to the end of some of these recordings and I found out that I've been saying someone's name wrong the whole way. So I just want to get that out the way now. Um, all right. I would love to, I mean, first I'm going to go off, off my little script and just follow my curiosity in this one and ask a little bit about Substack. So, I mean, my husband has briefly mentioned it as this platform for bloggers, but I'm not fully across um, what it is. So would you mind explaining to anyone listening what a Substack is? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of like a platform for bloggers, but it's so much more than that. Like we have so many high-level academics who are using Substack as a long-form way to share their work. So it's just really, really um connecting place to be there's a lot of people who are sharing really important work and it's just yeah it's a lot of fun to write on there and it's a lot of fun to make connections on there as well wow you've certainly just in that tiny snippet really piqued my interest so if anyone wants to check out your Substack, um do they go to substack.com and then they like search up lessons learned is that how it works yep that's how it works oh awesome all right thanks i just wanted to clarify what that is before we jump in all right, so if you could give your pre-motherhood self any advice about motherhood, what would that be? I think it would just be to tune out everyone else. Like don't compare yourself to someone else and their baby to your baby because everyone's journey is different and trying to compare yourself is just going to rob yourself of so much happiness and you will lose so much trust that you have in yourself as well. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really hard thing to do when you become a new mom and you're so vulnerable and you feel like you don't quite know what you're doing. Maybe everyone else knows what they're doing. You turn up to mother's groups and, I mean, did you ever get the sense, I, I'm sort of realising a lot of a lot of the moves I've made have been from non-conformity. And when you kind of stop and think, what do I want? And then you make different decisions. Sometimes you turn up to things and you feel like everyone else has read the same manual. They're all speaking, they're all drinking the same Kool-Aid. And you're like, why didn't I get the manual? I'm, I'm wanting to do it differently. Um, and that, that makes it a little hard to not compare. Like, did you find it hard to tune out the noise and to not compare? I think I found it harder when I was trying to conform. Like when I first started as a mother, I didn't you know, have any, any books or anything. I was just kind of going along, um, hoping that I'd just figure it out. And I had all these other moms and all these other babies who were sleep training and their babies were sleeping through the night. And I had a baby who just wouldn't sleep. He wouldn't nap. And I thought, you know, that I needed to try to do it their way. And it wasn't until I kind of stopped trying to conform and I started following my instincts and realizing that, you know, it's okay to have an attack, like a contact nap and it's okay to do attachment parenting and I can be different. I think that's when I started to feel a lot more empowered and a lot more confident in who I was and how I was doing things. Okay. So have I got this right? Essentially, when you started listening to yourself, um, 
he stopped caring so much about what anyone else was doing. Yeah, like when I was looking more at them and trying to be like them, I felt like I wasn't measuring up because I wasn't doing it like them and it wasn't working for me. When I tuned that out and said, you know what, I'm going to do what feels good for me and what works for me and my baby, that felt a lot better because I suddenly saw that, you know, I was happier, he was happier and it just felt better. Yeah, I love that. It reminds me of that saying, um, the more you love your decisions, the less you care if anyone else does or the less you care about judgment. I'm not sure if you've come across that, but um, often it's when we're out of alignment or not living true to our, our own values that we start looking at what everyone else is doing. Um, and I think, yeah, really good advice is try to figure out, I mean, how do you figure out what it really is right for you? Like, how did you figure out some people are like, what is the inner voice? I never got an inner voice. I never got an instinct. Like, how did you figure out what, what was right for you? Um, I think in part it was, hmm, I think in part it was turning to the research. Like the first parenting book I read was Save Our Sleep. And that was awful because that was like, like that was one that was recommended to me in my parenting group. And, you know, I started to obsess about, you know, the 7 p.m. train and things like that. And I realized that that wasn't working for me and it wasn't feeling right. And it took me a bit longer before I started to look at like higher level research, like how have humans been parenting for thousands of years? And that when I started doing that and following that sort of stuff, I realized that what my instincts were saying was hold my baby. And that's because we've always held our babies. And my instincts were saying, sleep with your baby close to you. And that's because we've always slept with our babies close to us. So yeah, looking at that higher level research the evolutionary perspective really helped me see okay this is what my instincts are saying and this is why and that's okay and that's a good thing to follow yeah I love that I mean I the amount of people that say they were gifted save our sleep it's just I was gifted save our sleep and I was gifted baby love um so save our sleeps by Tizzy Hall baby loves by Robin Barker and I'm so grateful that I read them and just felt horrified I was just like there was no part of me that was like maybe I will do that (laughs) yeah Uh, and and then I sort of um was lucky to come across a talk by Dr Howard Chilton and that opened up my eyes to the professionals saying actually it's best for your I mean he's a pediatrician and and, um infant uh, neonatologist um and he was saying you know nurture and hold your baby and then I wanted to have the baby in the bed and I found three in the bed I found the continuum concept I found um yeah what's the one by Dr Sarah Blackwell gentle birth gentle mothering anyway I'm just oh, yeah. the yeah. The, oh, the calm no I know what you're talking about the gentle sleep book what is gentle, Smith? oh no this one's a she's a GP and it's a gentle birth gentle mothering okay yeah but yeah but it, I think the point I'm just trying to make for anyone listening is like we hear about these mainstream books all the time but just mm. awareness that hearing that there are so many great books out there um and just to remember that like the best-selling books it's because they're good at marketing it's because this is going to be really intense but just to remember that um a lot of marketing is finding like a pain point and then saying that you have a solution and a lot of it is smoke and mirrors but like that's how Hitler worked he would find the crowd's pain point and then offer them solutions and because their pain was so strong they were open to his crazy solutions 
And I think it's so important to know in life, there's not actually not always solutions for everything. You're not meant to solve some stuff. You're meant to surrender to some stuff. Like, you know, you know, when nature burns down the trees, like there's no solution. They have to slowly regrow. Like you've sort of trusting Mother Nature's rhythm. Um, but yes, you've just reminded me how we're often gifted these books that are offering, that are appealing to a pain point that sometimes you're not really meant to solve. And by solving it, you're kind of taking a knife to Mother Nature's work. Um, and sometimes you're in that phase of life to learn that like nature is here to teach you how to work at nature's pace and work with nature. Um, so I would love to, if you could briefly describe your early mothering years then. So you're tuning in and your baby's not really much of a sleeper. What's that first year or two like? Um, yeah, so the first year of motherhood was like so beautiful, but it's also the time I most wish I could go back and do again um, because it was the time when I was trying to get my baby to sleep because people were telling me you know, he needs to sleep through the night by this age he needs to nap you know at least an hour and a half at every nap and he was awake up multiple times a night needed a cuddle needed some milk to go back to sleep only would nap 20 minutes at a time sort of baby um, and so I had a lot of anxiety about that and I was trying so hard to you know put him down drowsy but awake and it just never seemed to work and I thought I really thought it was because I was doing something wrong um, and that it was my fault that he wasn't sleeping and I was going to you know, ruin him for life um, if he didn't learn to sleep because that's kind of the messaging I was getting. Um, and it wasn't really until I was pregnant with my second, um, which was just a little bit after he was he turned one, that I realized, you know, it just it's not sustainable for me to keep getting up and putting my baby back in bed. I just was getting sore hips and I was just not not comfortable getting up and down multiple times a night. It was just pregnancy is you know pregnancy is tough so I just gave up and I just brought him into my bed and realized that this you know he was sleeping so much better everything was working so much better everything I was starting to read by that point was just telling me that that's the way to do things um that that's a better way of doing things and I realized I just needed to trust my guts so by the time the second one came around um they've only they're only 20 months apart so they're pretty close in age um I'd kind of already settled into we're going to co-sleep and you know, if he's okay to sleep in his own space and that's good, but if he doesn't want to, there's that option of co-sleeping. And yeah, I was already kind of um, going with extended breastfeeding and things by that point too. Um, but that's kind of the biggest, the biggest shift for me was around infant sleep and realizing what's actually developmentally appropriate and that what we're sold and marketed is most often not appropriate for an infant. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I think um, I sort of, I've done a bit of research into, into both sides of it. And I think it can be a little bit compelling when you go and you look at the research for baby sleep. But I think what you've got to do is read that research um, and understand you're looking at an empathy-less approach that is looking at babies like a computer program and they're not asking the question, is this best for babies long term? They're asking, does this work? Mm. Um, and things that work aren't always humane. You know, yeah. um, they used to treat schizophrenia by murdering the patient. Um, that worked to cure the schizophrenia. Um, was that human was that the right thing to do? And I think um 
it's important to know when you're reading sleep training science, saying air quotes, that it relies a lot on the concept of self, self-soothing. They say they mm-hmm. self-soothe, but that concept has never been proven that when a baby goes quiet, they're actually soothed. There's actually evidence mm-hmm. they're not soothed, that they are very stressed. No one has ever, there's no like reason why anyone was ever allowed to call that soothing. Um, it's just they go quiet and you know the prevailing wisdom is like with other species that that's a freeze response one of the most primitive response mm-hmm. freeze response which is a stress response which is getting flooded with cortisol um and so while you're researching you might find various things but replace the word self-soothing with stress stress or freeze response um from the fight flight freeze and also look at really consider the intention behind this science because I've read some and they're like their goal is to figure out how to get rid of the parental instinct to pick up their baby they're like our biggest barrier to this is that parents don't always want to do it (laughs) they're trying to figure out psychology hacks to influence and can to hack into a parent's brain and influence them to not do what their instinct is telling them so just think when you're reading that just for anyone listening that um just think, why are these people looking at what is natural for a parent and trying to find ways to overcome and hack the natural brain to get them to not listen to their instinct? Mm. Um, just really zoom out and look at the intent. Whereas if you look at the intent of the science from like Dr. James McKenna and Helen Ball, um, Elaine Barry, it's like, what is the intent here? The intent here is just to protect history, anthropology, biology, babies, Um, you know, on the one hand, it's like, how do we control these things? That's a sleep training camp. And on the other hand is how do we best nurture and make sure that these things grow up with a long-term view? Um, So I'll just, I just pop that in there because I've done so much social media action on this that I've seen in the comments, what comes up, that I'm trying Mm -hmm. to address all the objections in the comments as we go with people saying I've got science too yeah. Um, yeah and the other thing I will say on on bed sharing is um when you're looking at the statistics they're not true statistics because they include in bed sharing statistics like safety statistics they include people that have accidentally fallen asleep under the influence on couches in unsafe situations um, but when they actually look at just people that are following Dr. James McKenna's seven, Safe Sleep 7 guidelines, um, you know, then the risk of SEDS becomes the lowest. So mm. bed sharing is actually protective. You just have to know how to wade through all the information available out there to, to understand that. Thanks for letting me pop all my tidbits in here. <laughs> no worries. You're talking, I'm hearing like what people have said, um, as I've said, similar stuff online. So I want to know what was your life like prior to motherhood? Um, I was a student, so I was studying psychology. Um, and I actually didn't have much of a like married life before motherhood. I got married, was pregnant within three months. So um, our first baby was born the day after our first anniversary. So I guess I didn't have much um, time to settle into who I was before I started having kids. I was only 22 when he was born. Um, So, yeah, I feel like I've kind of come into my own person at the same time as becoming a mother and trying to figure out who I really am, what my identity is, 
all at the same time, which is, you know, it's interesting, but it's fun. Incredible. And how old are your children now? Um, six, four, one and a half. Amazing. I've just got to say, I don't know if it's the right thing to say or not, but I think that's such a good age to be having babies, like fertility wise and all this sort of stuff. Um, and I say that because not many people are telling any women this anymore. Um, they're all like, you can wait to your 40s. And then as soon as you go in to see the midwives and stuff, um, you find out, hang on, you know, <laughs> younger was probably um, was probably the best thing in terms of keeping my options open to have more children in terms of um, how vital and vibrant I'll be and that sort of stuff. So it's really cool to see someone that made that move younger than I see a lot of people around Sydney. Yeah, I think there's a lot of economic pressure as well to, you know, wait until you've bought a house and things like that. But in a way, it kind of worked so well for us because when we started, when we first got married, we had nothing. And so we didn't miss that I wasn't having an income. We didn't miss, you know, any of that. We've just always had nothing kind of, and we've just kind of built it up. So everything that we have now feels like such a blessing and it's never felt like kids have taken away from that. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I think that the kids have no idea in the first, especially three years, like they're like, is there breast milk? Is there some arms? And then they, like you are their home. Um at the start and like as they get older they start realizing the world around them more but yeah it's really not necessary in those early baby years to have much at all we we were sort of similar we'd moved to Sydney and we had just a small apartment um we sort of burned down the life we had in Melbourne where we had like owned property and all this sort of stuff we burned it down to follow our passions so we didn't have much by the time we had children but it has grown it's a similar thing you do feel appreciative um, for each layer that gets added on and I feel like there's some sort of magic to how your resources grow um, in proportion to whatever stage your children are at I don't know if that's just been our experience but um, yeah yeah I love that um, so then when did you decide to be a stay-at-home mum? Um, I think it was something I always planned on doing my mum was a stay-at-home mum until I was about I think about 11 she went back to study um, and I always wanted to be there for my kids like that was always part of the plan and like even though I still work a little bit now it's always been something I wanted to do flexibly like no more than one day a week because being with my kids was always the priority like I just they're only little for so long and I want to give them everything that I can. And have you found it easy to find like-minded people that also feel that way? Um, I think it's easy and then it's hard at the same time. Like it's it's easy to find stay-at-home mums when their baby's like one and then everyone starts going back to work and then like you find a new mum friend and then situations change and they go back to work or things like that. So it's hard to find a stable, I guess like a stable group. Um, it is a lot easier in the homeschooling community because there's a lot more stay-at-home mums there. Um, but yeah, I didn't find that until this year. I wasn't really planning on homeschooling. So yeah, uh, now I found some other um, stay-at-home mum friends, but yeah, it's definitely not. It's not something that's easy to do. As I'd love to. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, I find it's almost rare to speak to someone who's like, I wanted to stay home with my kids. Um, so that's why I asked if you if you knew many other people because I found that it's been rare to come across that. Um, mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about uh, how you came to homeschool. Um, so I think it kind of all started when I stopped trying to sleep train. I think taking that step all the way back then to 
stop conforming, set me on a path of questioning my decisions. So then, you know, it became a decision of do I want to keep breastfeeding when my child turns two? Because that's not normal, like in our society, to keep breastfeeding really beyond one. And so I started questioning that sort of thing. And then I started questioning, um, you know, just a lot of other things. Like, why am I doing this? Why, why do I feel like I need to send my child to school? Is there another option? Is there something that would be better for him and better for, for us as a family? Um, and I guess the biggest decision came in that, you know, he wasn't a big fan of going to kinder. He didn't really like the separation. And we were learning so much at home and we have so much more freedom on days when he's not at kinder or when he wasn't at kinder to do these family adventures and to keep learning and growing together. And it was just a lot more you know, it's a, I feel it a lot more liberating to be homeschooling than stuck in the schedule of school and the stress of school and not having to deal with those after-school meltdowns and things like that. So, yeah, that's kind of, yeah, I felt like it was better for him and better for us as a family. Mm. And so what is what is it like? What is homeschooling like? You, you do meetups with the community from time to time, but you have mainly sort of unstructured days? like when Yeah, you- so... Yeah, so we've got like a gentle rhythm to our, our days and our weeks. Like every Wednesday we have a nature group and we've got another homeschooling group we meet with every Friday. Uh, we've also got a couple of friends that we do occasional excursions with and get out and, you know, explore things according to our interests. Um, and then our days also have a rhythm as well. So we'll do uh, stack time story time. So we'll do some reading together then. Um, we also do learning activities, I call them. Um, and we can do that, you know, at any time of day, whenever it suits us best. Um, and we also do project time where we dive deeper into a topic that is interested in. Um, and it's just, yeah, just like a gentle rhythm. There are some weeks where we don't really do much structured or formal learning at all, but there's just so much that happens spontaneously. So I'm never stressed about like following a curriculum and keeping up with peers or anything because, you know, we might be behind in one area, but we're so far ahead in others just because that's where his interests lie and that's what we're we're following at that period of time I love that it's like following his values and his interests and his curiosity which is great which is often what um when you're doing mindset coaching with adults you're trying to navigate them back to <laughs> you know what I mean? like you know uh well, you're not trying you are you're unpacking what actually really is their values what really lights them mm. up um, and getting them on track with that because some people get off track and they wake up one day wondering like who am I mm. um, that's really cool that so young you're nurturing you know them to follow their own curiosity so your eldest is 11 you were saying so you've been doing six. oh six sorry I, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say so you've been doing that for quite some time okay no just a year you've been doing that so then mm-hmm. how, how are you going balancing three children um so it's actually not that hard, I find. I find it's easier having three than two um, just because they play together so well most of the time. Like, if you know, even if two are playing together, then I've got my attention on one. Um, but I think I'm really lucky in that they are, like, all three of them just such good friends and so kind to each other. And I know some, you know, some kids clash a lot more than others, but I've been really blessed to have kids that get along really well with each other. Oh, that's so beautiful. All right. So, yeah, having three has been, some people say it's like a whole lifestyle shift once you go to three, sort of needed a different car, different holiday, different, 
all this sort of stuff, but it's been seamless for you, it seems. Yeah, well, it's been a lot easier than going from one to two. I found that was a bit more of a, a shock because it was like, oh, now I have to split my time, split my energy, whereas going from two to three, I was already splitting my time. But now when I was giving attention to one, the other one wasn't alone. They had, you know, a little sibling buddy to keep them busy. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I found that the change from one to two was <laughs> intense. But then once my youngest got old enough to be a playmate, it became much easier because mm. they played together. But in that first year where one's a baby, um, they can't really play much. It can be a little bit tricky. Um, mm. Yeah. So what have been your greatest challenges of being a responsive parent? Um, I think the biggest challenge is not burning out because, you know, our children have needs and they're very big needs when they're little because they don't they can't meet a lot of their needs for themselves they can't you know when they're six months old if they're hungry they can't just go to the cupboard and get a snack they have to ask for milk um and in the early ages there's so much that only I can do as the mother and unfortunately for most of us our village is non-existent so where we could just pass off the baby and be like hey I need a nap look after the baby I'm gonna nap we can't really just just do that because our husbands are at work, our neighbours are at work, our parents are at work, and a lot of the people we would traditionally rely on to help us out are all out of the home or don't live near us, and that's just kind of the norm. So it's really easy to try to be the village as just the mother. And when you do that, it's so easy to burn out. And, you know, I think I've definitely reached moments where I've gotten very close to being completely burnt out and trying to keep being calm and keep being a kind, responsive parent when you're so worn out is really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And has there been anything that you've learned that, that helps you to not get burned out? I think it's reminding myself that I can't be the village by myself. So when I do need a break, it's trying not to feel guilty about saying, hey, mum, you come take the kids for the day and then not feeling guilty if I just, you know, watch TV for the day. If that's what I feel like I need to do. It's not trying to always be productive and not trying to always get through the to-do list and like knowing as well that in those in those days where there is no one else who can really come in and help, it's okay to have a do-nothing day and where all I accomplish is just feeding the kids. If the house is a mess at the end of the day, that's okay if my mental health is intact. That's more important. Yeah, yeah. Motherhood really shines a light on what's actually important and it really teaches you how to rest because it's like if you don't learn that lesson, you're going to burn out really hard. So um, I kind of love that in a way. It's sort of you can't escape learning about rest and just, you know, not judging yourself, just taking the pressure off a bit you just won't cope if you try to be too perfect <laughs> yeah yeah so what has been the what have been the greatest rewards of being a responsive parent I think it's just seeing how happy my kids are like they feel so secure in the love that I have for them and because they're they're secure in that they're able to share that with each other so like I love seeing moments where one of them is crying Oh, sorry, I've got, um, oops. Um, yeah, like seeing moments where one of them is crying and 
the another one comes in to to calm them and comfort them because they've experienced so much of that love and so much of that kindness that they know how to how to give that to each other wow that's beautiful so um and do you think that's because you've been role modeling and meeting their needs that way that that's how they've learned um that that's how we treat other people when they're also upset I think so yeah like I think I've always tried to to encourage them as well to be kind in those ways so when when one of them is crying I'm always like hey let's go give them a cuddle let's give them a toy let's see what they need and yeah just by being responsive to their needs it's helped also to role model how we can be responsive to to others yeah absolutely it's absolutely been my experience too we just got the school reports it literally says in my eldest daughter's report about her empathy how she has such beautiful empathy and I had um had mothers tell me that this year they requested their children to be in her class because their children told them the mothers oh you know I really like you know um my eldest daughter because she's she's very caring and she's always the one to check if someone's having a hard time and like that empathy has really come through um so it is very powerful it is sort of almost like karma what you give your children they will then pass on to those around them and then that way Mm. you can really beautiful ripple effect um of love really it reminds me of this I, i say it all the time i'm really into it but this beatles quote um in the end the love you create is equal to the love you make and it's like it might just seem like one child that you're pouring all this love into or two or three but when you think about how many lives they're going to touch you know, the work of mothers is just so valuable. And so on that, I mean, do you feel like the work you do as a mom, uh, as a parent is valued? No, I wish it was. Um, I know I value it and I know my family values it, but it's so easy to get caught up in feeling like you're not doing enough, especially because the work that we do as mothers gets undone so quickly. Like, you can be sweeping the floors all day and there'll still be crumbs at the end of it. And you can, you know, tend to crying children all day. And at the end of the day, they're still going to cry one more time. Like there's nothing that you do that stays done. And everything that you're doing is such, you're not going to see the benefits until 10 or 20 years for a lot of it. Like it's, it's a really long-term game. And I think our society is really focused on numbers and seeing benefits in the short term. And as a result, motherhood really isn't valued as much as it should be. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that's sad. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I I think it is such a long-term game. And I think think part of it is political in the sense that we have parties come into power and they're only in for a short amount of time. And when they're in, they're trying to prove that they've increased the bottom line in the economy and budget. So all the policies are so short-term and that leaves behind things that are very long-term, like motherhood. It's like, okay, but the mothering that's being done now, the parenting that's being done now is going to be affecting our workforce, you know, 20, 30 years from now. But if you're only trying to get voted in for this term and then for the next term, that's not going to be your problem because you, you were in for five years and then out you went. Um, then, yeah, you don't really care. And I think that, therefore, policy, society, structure, the culture really leaves behind um motherhood which is more at the pace of nature which is more you've got to sow seeds now that will flourish later and I just I just want to share for anyone listening that like there is a light at the end of the tunnel um 
yeah, I just felt like I just poured and poured and gave and gave and gave in those early years, like so incredibly much. And there was like beyond getting any positive validation, there was like the opposite. No matter what you did, there was a child that was still not satisfied. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. wrong snack or the wrong this or yeah, there was never a moment at work you do a task someone acknowledges it, you know, you have ceremonies and get certificates and someone, you know, there's so much acknowledgement at work compared to even just an email, someone writes back, thank you. Like you don't even get something that simple in motherhood. <laughs> um, it's it's just give, give, give. And then it's just negative reviews, you know, for years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, you do get that beautiful time when they fall asleep in your arms and it's like, that is so rewarding, isn't it? It's like, oh, when they surrender and then they're asleep and you sit there and you're like, you feel a sense of achievement in that moment, but they're, they're few and far between in a 24 hour cycle. And um, I just want to share that though, now that my eldest is, is eight, it does get, it's it's been super rewarding ever since she was about, I don't know, six, seven, eight. It's like you start to see, you start to see some of those seeds that you sowed um, flourishing in a little way. And then it's like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And, um, yeah, it's a you have to wait for that that moment, but you do see the benefit of your work. But the other thing that comes up is I just did a podcast episode I recorded with someone from Parents Work Collective, which are looking at um how we need to get more policy and structure as a society around for mothers because they are doing a lot of unpaid labor. And it gets me thinking about how everything got monetized except for motherhood you know it's sort of there's so much labor and it's not paid um yeah and I sort of think I mean and she was saying in Sweden and in other countries parents do get subsidized for a significant period of time to be parenting their children and I think in a society where you know people aren't having that many babies now um it's just too expensive and and um women are more we've been trained we've been conditioned from such a young age to be way more focused on our careers than on having children we're now sort of seeing um the aging population where we don't have enough new coming through to match and support the needs of the aging population makes me feel like that there needs to be some subsidy or some payment to to people that do choose to be stay-at-home parents for their labor what do you think about that I think that'd be a good idea. Like we already do so much subsidies for childcare so that women can work in paid employment. But I think the work that we do at home is just as important, even if we can't put a solid economic dollar on it and say, this is how much it's worth. I think, because, you know, I do a little bit of both. I do a bit of paid employment as well. And, you know, I can tell from that comparison that the work I'm doing at home is so much more valuable in the long term, not just immediately to my children, but to all of the people that they're going to impact as well. Because I'm, you know, I'm I'm really doing my best to raise good humans. And I'm not saying that anyone who works full time isn't doing that as well, but you're outsourcing a lot of the the hours to other people who you're paying to help raise your children. Whereas I'm doing all of that. And you know, where we'd pay someone else, I feel like, you know, if I was getting a little bit of um, monetary amount put on my time, it would help other people see that as valuable as well. So it's less because I'd I'd need it personally, but more because when we do put dollars on something, it helps us realise that it's actually worth something. 
Yes, I, I think it helped to, for people to see the value in it um, and therefore for more people to want to do it. Um, not that they should be doing it for the money, but to make it more of a choice that it's not impossible to do it. But also I think if we're not supporting mother's mental health, we're not supporting the future of society. And I think if mothers are stressing about economics and making it work, um, their mental health is going to be suffering. They're going to be stressed and that's going to have a flow on effect to their children, um, mm. which is, you know, and then we all lose. So, yeah, I really, I agree that it's the hardest work I've ever done those, those early years because it was just, yeah, 24-7 and relentless. And I don't at all ever think the solution should be, well, decrease the children's needs, ignore the, neglect the children's needs, train them to not let you know when they have needs to make it easier. I don't think the solution should be trying to get children to not be children and trying to get mothers to not be mothers. I think the solution should be acknowledging the value of childhood, motherhood, and um, putting resources and support toward that. So it seems at the moment, the current policy is just trying to erase the needs of motherhood and childhood. Yeah, yeah it 100% is. And I think even, even if you are, you know, paying mothers and things to be stay-at-home mothers, that I think is the whole solution as well. Like we need to have a network of people. We need there to be, you know, maybe an access to like grandparents leave or something like that where the grandparents can be involved in raising the children again because that's how it's always been. And, yeah, it's not enough to just have a mother or even a mother and a father. You need a whole network so that everyone can work as a team to raise this infant when they've got 24-7 needs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I totally agree on the whole the requirement for a village and it was never just one mum doing it alone. So it's sort of we've got this impossible task now. So I would just love to briefly um, hear about what what are you sharing on your lessons learned? What What is your sub stack? Um, so, yeah, I cover pretty much everything, parenting from infants up to, well, up to about six because that's where, I, where I'm up to, but you know, a lot of the the lessons that you do learn when your children are little applies to parenting teens and, you know, older kids as well. So it's all about um, learning, I guess, how to be an intentional parent. And, you know, I've covered topics like baby wearing. I've covered topics about co-sleeping, also just, you know, tantrums and negotiating and communicating fairly with your children. So, yeah, I think that's a bit, I hope there's a bit for everyone um, that everyone could learn from it because I know I learn a lot when I write each article and I research um, quite extensively for a lot of the articles to make sure that what I'm saying is in line with the best research out there, the best practices, and that it's not just my opinion because I know that, you know, I've got a very small sample of children on which to test out these ideas that I have, but there is a lot of really good quality evidence about how we should be raising our children and the best way to get them to be happy, healthy, resilient children. Sounds terrific. Sounds great. Amazing. Well, Beck, thank you so much for your time today. I know it's really, well, I don't know, I've only got two, but I imagine it's very hard to find just a window of opportunity when you've got three children, um, especially little ones. So I really appreciate you being able to chat with us today and to share a lot of your, your wisdom. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a joy chatting with you today. My pleasure. I just want to ask, is there anything that you didn't get to share today that you wish I had, uh, I had asked you or mentioned? Is there anything that I 
haven't touched on that you sort of were hoping to share? Um, nothing I can think of. I think, you know, we've covered a fair, fairly broad amount of topics. Um, but yeah, there's always more that you could dive into. Motherhood is such, there's, there's so much to talk about. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much.